In the Foxhole is not endorsed by HBO Home Entertainment, DreamWorks Television, and Playtone Production Company. Band of Brothers, its logos, names, still frames, and audio are registered trademarks and copyrights of their respective owners. It is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. All research information and audio used for the production are cited at www.nestedquerypodcast.com and any missed sites are merely unintentional. subject to a multitude of jumps and extensive training. However, nothing simulates to the real thing and the pressure that comes with it. In Operation Overlord, the Paratrooper Infantry Regiment was tasked with completing a night jump prior to the eventual beach invasion the coming morning on D-Day. Episode 2 titled Day of Days begins where Curry he left off. We see Lieutenant Winters and 2nd Battalion in the C-47 awaiting the final moments before their jump into Normandy, France. The director does a great job of panning through the fuselage of the transport plane, making sure to get point of views of various paratroopers, their pensive looks of concentration, suppressed fear, thoughts of prayer, and even for some of sleep, perhaps from the air sickness pills provided to them prior to the jump. The primary goal of the 501st was to land safely in the vicinity of St. Marie du Mont and seize four causeways behind Utah Beach. Come morning, an estimated 23,000 troops were slated to invade Utah Beach from the 4th Infantry Division. The paratrooper soldiers were being trusted to soften the German army and quiet down the assault anticipated to barrage Utah Beach and the infantry that morning. A heavy wire was tied from front to back along the fuselage ceiling. Paratroopers were trained to hook up to this wire. This would ensure that once paratroopers jumped out the tied wire would pull the reserve chutes immediately. Lieutenant Lynn Compton, a platoon leader, mentions in his memoir just how essential it was to have well-trained NCOs to carry through these orders. As the invasion of C-47s made their way across the English Channel, arriving into German-occupied France, was synchronized with anti-aircraft flak by German mortar teams, German artillery. Soon the night sky was filled with tracing flak heading towards American aircrafts. For some reason, all these preparations and the eventual real thing reminds me of what boxing champ Mike Tyson once said. Every fighter has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. This quote's easily translatable to many situations. Our beloved paratroopers had a plan, but they just got cold clocked in the mouth. You had aircraft sustaining direct hits, itchy pilots giving the green signal too early, leading to many paratroopers missing their drop zones. In the fuselage, the red lights illuminate to signal the waiting paratroopers to prepare for the jump and to do last second equipment checks. In the case for Lieutenant Winters and his platoon, that very thing occurred. 
Once the green light illuminated, Winters gave the all-go and was the first to jump out. Once on the ground, Winters found himself alone with no one in sight and no weapon in hand. His infamous leg bag that was touted as ingenious by the English military was lost as most paratroopers exited the aircraft. Just a sudden blow of the air as you jump out the aircraft unwrapped those leg bags immediately. At least for most. In Winter's case, his M1 was lost and had no weapon. Winter's found a paratrooper named Hall from another company. They immediately make their way to regroup with other paratroopers. Abel, sir. Guess that means one of us is in the wrong drop zone, huh, sir? Yeah, or both of us. Do you have a weapon, sir? Just my knife. Do you have any idea where we are, sir? Some. So we are a radio man. Yes, sir. Well, I was until I lost my radio on the jump. I'm sure I'll get chewed out for that. Well, if you were in my platoon, I'd tell you you were a rifleman first, a radio man second. Well, maybe you could tell that to my platoon leader when we find him, if we find him. It's a deal. First, I need your help. Locate some landmarks to get our bearings. Keep your eyes peeled for buildings, farmhouses, bridges, roads, trees. I wonder if the rest of them are as lost as we are. We're not lost, Private. We're in Normandy. Immediately, Winters displays the calm nature a leader should exhibit, even in a chaotic situation. Winters is able to find Sergeant Lipton, confirmed by their nonverbal indicator, the cricket sounder which serves as an identifier to other American troops. They're able to confirm their location and distance they need to reach their objective. In the interim, they also link up with Garnier, Toy, and Malarkey. They, en they encounter a German group of soldiers transporting materials via horseback. In the episode, we see the Americans ready for ambush. Awaiting for Winters' cue, Garnier jumps the gun and begins the slaughter. The rest follow. All Germans were killed on the spot. Winters wastes no time advising Garnier who's in charge. Enough, Garnier! Everyone okay? Sir, sir. Next time I say wait for my command, you wait for my command, Sergeant. Yes, sir. Sergeant Garnier already has his preconceived notion of who Winters is as a person. He associates him as a Quaker, who he's unsure of following. Merely just a premature judgment on someone that Garnier does not fully know yet. You see him? He just sat there. He didn't have a weapon. What's he gonna do, shout at him? Shout to me for killing Krauts. He just wanted you to wait for his command. Joe, he don't even drink. That exchange was actually pretty funny, I thought. You have Sergeant Garnier trying to plead his case to his buddy Toy as they walk to the rallying point. Every chance Toy gets, he's just trying to defuse the situation. 
You can definitely tell Garnier was just looking for some type of affirmation. But Toy was not obliging in this case. I've actually found myself in a situation like that before as well, where I'm just kind of looking for some affirmation from buddies of mine. But basically what they do is they go through every expense to, to not oblige, and it actually makes you feel even more guilty. But I guess that's what you got to love about brothers. They'll always be there to put you in your place because they love you. Another interesting jump story I read about was that of paratrooper Burt Christensen. Once he landed on his jump, he found himself 40 yards away from a platoon of German soldiers shooting anti-aircraft flak towards the flying C-47s above. Lucky for him, he landed to their backs and the Germans were unaware of his arrival during their chaotic firing session. After hiding moments by the base of an apple tree, scanning the area with his eyes, Christensen moved away from the platoon and hooked up with another American soldier. Slowly, the adrenaline drained from Christensen's brain, and the two men began backing away from the German position. They ran into Bill Randleman, another paratrooper, who had a dead German at his feet. Randleman related that the moment he had gotten free of his shoot, he had fixed his bayonet. Suddenly, a German came charging, his bayonet fixed. Randleman knocked the whole weapon aside, then impaled the German on his bayonet. That crowd picked the wrong guy to play bayonets with, Christensen remarked. <laughs> Lieutenant Welsh, his plane was at 250 feet when he jumped. During his jump, another plane had actually crashed right, in, right beneath him. He claims that the blast, the blast uh, propelled him up and to the side, which he believes actually saved his life. If it wasn't for that blast, he probably could have landed in the wreckage itself. Episode cuts to battalion headquarters where Easy Company is finally reacclimating with the rest of the company. There's a small scene where we see Malarkey interact with a German prisoner of war, a POW. The prisoner was actually an American, born in America, a son of German true Aryans, who answered the call to return to the fatherland to protect Father Germany. This prisoner actually grew up in Oregon, the same state Malarkey grew up in, within a few hundred miles from each other. I thought this was a very quick and telling way to show the commonalities between these types of men. If it wasn't for the war, the different uniforms they had on, you can almost see them having the same conversation over a couple of whiskeys. As Malarkey rejoins his group, you see Lieutenant Spears heading towards the group of POWs, handing them cigarettes. The camera then pans back to Malarkey, who's alarmed with the noise of rifle fire. It's assumed that Spears kills all the POWs after giving them cigarettes. Now, through outside reading, it's proven that Spears did in fact kill some POWs, was hard-nosed. However, I believe the scene in this episode is misleading to the number of prisoners and in to what context. Nevertheless, it paints a picture of Lieutenant Spears as a soldier you don't want to fuck with. News of this spread like wildfire throughout the regiment. The further it spread, the larger the group of POWs was. So you can see how news like this can spread from soldier to soldier, and suddenly it loses its authenticity really quick. If anything, it gives us an early glimpse of the unapologetic methods that Spears fights the war in. With still no word of Lieutenant Meehan, Winters is requested into battalion headquarters 
where Colonel Strayer advises him of an encampment of German artillery units at Braycourt Manor. They were supplied with German 88s, at least that was the intelligence given to them, which are anti-tank artillery pieces that Germany was using on our infantry soldiers arriving at Utah Beach. Simple orders. Engage on the 88s and kill all the Germans. In the Ambrose book, Band of Brothers, it is explained that Winters himself conducts a reconnaissance trip to Braycourt Manor to assess the threat at hand. He was able to obtain important data to develop the effective plan to disable those 88s. The episode cuts to Winters explaining the situation and how Easy Company is going to engage them. I've been spotted in a field down the road a ways. Major Strayer wants to take him out. There are two guns that we know of firing on Utah Beach and plan on a third and a fourth here and here. The Germans are in the trenches with access to the entire battery with machine gun cover in the rear. We'll establish a base of fire and move under it hard and fast with two squads of three. How many crowds do you think we're facing? No idea. No idea. We'll take some TNT along with us. Despite the guns. Lipton, your responsibility. Yes, sir. Leave got, you'll take the first machine gun. With Petty A gunner. Plesha, Hendricks, you take the other. Who does that leave? Compton, Malarkey, Toy, Garnier. Okay. We'll be making the main assault. Understood? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right, let's pack it up, boys. As easy approaches the artillery battery, they see a trench connecting 405mm howitzer guns, defended by a company of German soldiers. The trench itself sits next to a hedgerow. The trench is used by the German battery as easy access connecting all four howitzer guns into one single network. We later learn that the same trench proves to be the Germans' weakness as Easy engages the first gun and enters the trench, using it as cover from the covering German machine gun soldiers. The goal was to capture and destroy all four guns and stop any damage they were causing three miles down at Utah Beach to our infantry boys. Winters orders a team of American machine gunners to take out one position of German machine guns, covering and immediately provide cover as Winters and the rest of the men attack and take gun number one. Once captured, the suppression fire were to move closer to the newly captured gun to disable the guns with TNT and continue providing cover as the next gun is being attacked. Consider it a mobile attack and cover situation. The cover provided by Compton, Malarkey, and Garnier gave Winters and the rest of the men the necessary security to take the next three guns. As TNT was placed in the barrel of the howitzer guns, German stick grenades were used as detonating mechanisms to blow the TNT and disable the guns. During the onslaught, Winters was able to locate MAPS intelligence at one of the gun locations. We later learned through Lieutenant Nixon that the map had the locations of all artillery batteries in the Cherbourg Peninsula. Once the four guns were disabled, Easy came under heavy machine gun fire and retreated back to battalion headquarters. Later, an armored division group disposed of the remaining German soldiers standing ground at Braycourt Manor. Of the 20 plus or so, only four were killed in action, including Private F.C. John D. Halls, who was the soldier who first linked up with Winters after the initial jump. This battle in itself gained many awards and recognitions.
Medals awarded. Purple Heart and Bronze Star. Popeye Wynn, John D. Halls, Rusty Houck. Bronze Star. Carwood Lipton, Cleveland Petty, Walter Hendricks, Donald Malarkey, Myron Rainey, Joseph Leavgott, John Plesha, Joe Toy. The Silver Star, Buck Compton, Bill Garnier, Gerald Lorraine, and the Distinguished Service Cross, Lieutenant Richard Dick Winters. Once those howitzers were disabled, the troops landing at Utah Beach noticed significant decreases in anti-aircraft fire. In fact, some infantry soldiers noted significant relief once second and third waves began to arrive at the beaches. In Winters' memoirs, he discusses a letter he received years later from a medical officer that arrived in the fourth wave to Utah Beach. That medical officer recalls upon arriving, finding Captain John Ahern, the commanding officer of Company C, of the 70th Tank Battalion. Before being found by the medical officer, he had sustained grave injuries when his tank was hit by anti-tank fire by the same howitzers that Easy Company had been tasked with disabling. To top it off, that commanding officer suffered more injuries upon exit into a minefield when trying to save two other soldiers. Legs mangled and in grave danger, the medical officer began his ascent to treat and clear John Ahern and especially to clear him from that minefield. That medical officer had always wondered why military bombing had seized from the enemy. He was able to transport John Ahern out of the minefield and prepare him for transport and additional treatment. Captain John Ahern survived despite losing a leg and another foot and died in 2004. That junior medical officer who was able to treat Captain John Ahern without bombarding fire was Elliot R. Richardson, future Attorney General for the Nixon administration and recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1998. <laughs> Colonel Sink had originally recommended Lieutenant Winters for the Medal of Honor, but the recommendation was later downsized to the Silver Cross since only one soldier per regiment could earn the Medal of Honor at that time. That honor was bestowed upon another soldier in the regiment. Like the true leader he was, Winters found more honor in the recognition and re remembrance of his soldiers who were there at Braycorp Manor by high-ranking officials. As D-Day plus one had came to a close, it was now tangible to estimate that Winters is now the executive commanding officer of Easy Company. With no word of Lieutenant Meehan and anyone from his plane, adrenaline finally subsiding, Winters found himself trying to gather himself in solitude. Upon his walk, he ran into most of his NCOs in the back of a transport vehicle while Chef Malarkey was cooking some type of stew, utilizing an empty metal ammo box as a pot. I'm not sure if it was the commotion or the particular smell of that stew that brought Winters to them. Good evening. Hello, sir. Something dying here? Sir Malarkey's ass. Uh... Any word on Lieutenant Meehan yet, sir? No, not yet. Don't that make you our commanding officer, sir? Yeah, it does. Sir. Uh, Joe, the lieutenant don't drink. It's been a day of first. 
Don't you think, Garnier? Yes, sir. Carry on. Night, sir. Oh, Sergeant? Sir. I'm not a Quaker. My guess the county's probably a Mennonite. What's a Mennonite? In that short exchange, Winters and Garnier were able to squash whatever misunderstandings emerged earlier that day and share unique respect for each other that only brothers in arms can develop. Lieutenant Winters probably takes his first swig of straight liquor, a first for most men that day, as they had a very tough baptism by fire. Although for a very small moment, Winters was able to drop his professional guard and relate to his men while still kind of getting back at Garnier. That whole day of leading Easy Company indoctrinated Winters as a man's soldiers would follow into combat, willingly. That night I took time to thank God for seeing me through that day of days and prayed I would make it through D plus one. And if somehow I managed to get home again, I promised God and myself that I would find a quiet piece of land someplace and spend the rest of my life in peace. The episode ends with a uh, quote at the end. It says, uh, Easy Company's capture of a German battery became a textbook case of an assault on a fixed position. And it's still demonstrated at the United States Military Academy at West Point today. That in itself, uh, to me, when I first read that, I thought, wow, this was, um, although a small battle, this was definitely something that Winters had executed perfectly. Um, there's a lot of things that go into that. Um, his reconnaissance, his training, all those nights in that family held up in Alborn, you know, learning about strategy, uh, making sure that he had got the confidence in his men. He made every decision swift and with such confidence. I really enjoyed the uh, direction here of this episode, Day of Days, directed by uh, Richard Longcrane. Um, and, you know, it was the main focus of the episode itself was uh, Lieutenant Winters, Richard Winters. But we did see an introduction to a lot of other soldiers within Easy Company. We saw Buck Compton. Uh, we saw Carwood Lipton, um, played by Donnie Wahlberg, for those that know him. Uh, we saw B Bill Garnier, Toy, a bunch of the non-coms that eventually are going to move up within the ranks um, during the, the series. So, But mainly the focus was actually just Dick Winters, the Battle of Breakhorn Manor itself. A couple of things that I saw that was really interesting. There was a moment in the battle where you see Buck Compton uh, throw an American grenade towards a running German soldier. Almost throws it like a baseball. Throws that baseball towards his back, that grenade towards his back, and it explodes when it hits and impacts him. That that was very peculiar, by the way, and I was wondering why the director wanted that in there. I uh, did some more research on Buck Compton. I read his book as well, and I noticed it. It made sense when I when I read some of his memoir. Was that um, before the war had started, he was a college student at UCLA. He played baseball at UCLA and was a catcher. 
So you could definitely see that uh, that ode or that kind of tip of the hat to his baseball days uh, doing that. In fact, even uh, Rick, Richard Winters himself said in his memoir that Buck Compton would do that all the time and was very good at it. So I thought that was really interesting that they, they added little Easter eggs like that about the soldiers here and there. Another thing that was really uh, interesting was, as well was, uh, you know, without a weapon, Lieutenant Winters was still in charge and still displayed every bit of confidence, was not worried. I'm sure he was really scared, but didn't want his men to kind of sense that and sense that anxiety. So I thought that was interesting. That's something that's relatable to anybody. I mean, even in the workforce, within the family, you always want to make sure that, uh, you're always planning ahead and staying on top of things. A few things that I learned about uh, reading about Breakhorn Manor. So when Breakhorn Manor was liberated by the Americans, the family that actually lived in that, in that area had exited their home to greet the American soldiers. Um, some soldiers themselves actually mistook the family for other German soldiers and actually fired upon them. Um, but I believe it's the son. The son of the, in that family was actually uh, badly injured uh, by the gunfire and had to be transported to a hospital ship and undergo lots of treatment. He later survived his wounds and in penance for what he felt was happening to him, he later turned Breakhorn Manor into an actual museum in remembering Easy Company and the American British soldiers that liberated that area. So I thought that was kind of interesting to know that, that even to this day, you can still go to the very area of Breakhorn Manor, walk the grounds, and actually, you know, kind of interact with people that have lived in that area. So I thought that was really interesting and kind of sparked my interest. I wouldn't mind doing that as a trip. I did notice as well that they went a little bit into Bill Garnier and what he was going through. We saw that at the end of Curry, he... He got learned about his brother, his brother, uh, kind of getting killed in combat at a uh, at casino in in, in the Italy uh, area um, while he was already fighting. So he had already had such disdain for the war, disdain for the German enemy. So you know, I don't blame him for doing what he did. And in fact, um, Dick Winters actually says that in his book was you know he understands that you know why Bill did that. You know his his anxiety, his anxious to get things over with and to kill every German in sight didn't blame him either but you know when you when you don't follow a straight order that's kind of where he made sure that he let his authority be known but it was interesting to kind of see that uh actually kind of funny to see Winters kind of get his revenge on him because he overheard him call him a Quaker I thought that was kind of funny just to get some kind of comedy out of Winters was was really uh, fresh. One last thing. So, Lieutenant Winters got the Distinguished Service Cross, but actually later, in, later after the war ended, um, a congressman had heard about his story and wanted to upgrade that to the Medal of Honor. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting too, that that battle in itself made an impact on people later in life. Um, that, that piece of legislation made it past the House, but didn't make it past the Senate and later died off. But I thought that was kind of kind of a cool Easter egg to learn about that, you know, that the, the legs of the battle went stretched further beyond the war. So 
yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting, and I wanted to let you guys know about that as well. I enjoyed the episode. Uh, I thought it was really a good introduction to how the battles are going to be depicted, how they're going to be filmed. Um, this is from the, the director and the producers of other war films, so I thought it was it was definitely a a good kind of smooth introduction to how they're going to depict war. I assume it's going to get harder to watch. I assume it's going to get tougher to watch. And I even assume that the people that we're going to know that are, are probably going to die um, later in the series. I just hope it's not, you know, the ones that we grew attached to. But overall, I enjoyed the episode. I uh, thought it was a good introduction to what happened in D-Day. You know, up until Band of Brothers, the only thing I knew about in D-Day was what I saw in other movies. Uh, the Longest Day or... Or Bander, uh, not Bander, uh, Saving Private Ryan. Man, and Saving Private Ryan, those first 24 minutes, God. The, that that just is ingrained in my brain. Such a great kind of depiction of what war is like. It's so chaotic. Um, but this was kind of a, a different spin of things. You know, paratroopers were already behind enemy lines, so they're going to encounter a lot more Germans um, during their their liberation of France. So this episode aired back in September 9th of 2001. Um, I believe it was the, the same day that the series actually debuted. I think it was back to back with the first and second episode. So um, hope you all enjoyed it. Um, we got quite a few more to go uh, until the series is over. Um, if you have any questions, please feel free to email me at nestedquerypodcast at gmail.com. Once again, my name is Ralph. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I look forward to hearing from you guys and and be on the lookout for the next episode. Thanks a lot. Bye. In the Foxhole is not endorsed by HBO Home Entertainment, DreamWorks Television and Playtone Production Company. Bander Brothers, its logos, names, still frames, and audio are registered trademarks and copyrights of their respective owners. It is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. All research information and audio used for the production are cited at www.nestedquarrypodcast.com and any missed sites are merely unintentional.